0: Welcome back. As we continue to consider how you should be crafting your speech, we're going to move from our subject last time, which was about the architecture and structure of your speech, with its tripartite form, beginning, middle, end. And we're going to consider today a kind of speech that is often something you are going to have to deliver, a factual speech where you will be building a logical case. This is a speech in which you are stating some principles at the beginning and proving a point by the end. It's important if you are in situations involving law or political situations. It's important if you are giving a religious speech, a sermon where you're making a point based on holy writ and carried through to something that applies to modern times it's important in business for sales or for promoting the idea of a a new activity for your company in any of these cases you've got to build the logical case to be credible now we can go back to Aristotle for some guidance on the kinds of appeals that work in a logical case he gives us three very handy as a an echo of our our subject last time Aristotle's three appeals are logos, ethos, or ethos, and pathos. Logos is reason. Logos means the concept. The ethos, or ethos, is an appeal to personality. He thought of it as an appeal to your own personality. You should believe me because I'm a good and honorable person. But it can also be extended to the idea of ad hominem attacks, that is an attack on the other man, the other person, ad hominem, you are at your antagonist and talking about that character and saying don't believe any of that because of the kind of person that is. Obviously this is a weaker argument than the logos, the reason, the logic, and of course logic comes from that word logos. And third there is pathos, the appeal to the emotions as we're going to see it makes you a much weaker person in in presenting your argument if you base it on the ethos the personal element or the pathos the emotional element rather than the logos so what we're going to focus on today are good examples of building a speech on logos and some contrary examples where people will use the ethos or the pathos instead and I believe not be so convincing We're going to start with our featured guest professor today, Susan B. Anthony, American suffragette of the mid-19th century, who was famous for her work trying to secure the vote for women in America. She gave this speech many times. In 1872, she had walked into a barbershop, which was a voter registration place, and demanded the right to register. And when she cowed the people there into submission and did register. She was then accused of a crime and fined $100. She never paid that fine, but starting in the following year, she gave this speech, which became her signature speech on the subject of voters' rights, what she had done, and sets out to prove in a very logical way that she was in the right. I'll be reading parts of the speech and then breaking it down as we go so that we can follow the process of her logos, her use of logic from beginning to end, creating a straight arrow-like trajectory from the bow to the target so that we start with some principles, we end with the conclusion which she feels is irrefutable, and if she's done her work, you will feel the same way. Friends and fellow citizens, I stand before you tonight under indictment for the alleged crime of having voted at the last presidential election without having a lawful right to vote. It shall be my work this evening to prove to you that in thus voting, I not only committed no crime, but instead simply exercised my citizens' rights guaranteed to me and all United States citizens by the national constitution beyond the power of any state to deny that's her introduction that's as personal as she's going to get but she needed to explain her relationship to this issue this logical problem for you to have belief in her for her to be credible to you as someone that needs to speak on this point and that you want to listen to now she presents the axiom the unassailable truth on which her argument will be based the preamble of the federal Constitution says We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I don't know if she read that from a book or not, but it would certainly be appropriate for her to take that up in a book and read it to you as a listener. It would be appropriate for you as a speaker, when you are giving your axiom or axioms, those bedrock truths on which your argument will be based, to read them. It gives you something to do at the beginning of the speech with your hands. It ensures that you will exactly quote the original words, and the audience will feel more confident seeing that these... Axioms come from a source, a printed source, and not from your own memory. Now back to Susan B. Anthony. What's she going to get into now? Definitions of terms. Very important to Aristotle, very important to anybody building a logical case. It was we, the people, not we, the white male citizens, nor yet we, the male citizens, but we, the whole people, who formed the union. And we formed it not to give the blessings of liberty, but to secure them. Not to the half of ourselves and the half of our posterity, but to the whole people, women, as well as men. And it is a downright mockery to talk to women of their enjoyment of the blessings of liberty while they are denied the use of the only means of securing them provided by this Democratic-Republican government, the ballot. All right, here's the problem. It comes from the definition. We is in the preamble to the Constitution. It's not limited in some way, she points that out. It's, It's not just white males or even just males. It's we the people that must include Females. So, in the definition of the term, she is beginning to work out the strength of her argument that's going to lead to her conclusion. Now, now we move on. She's already gotten to that hardcore nub of the whole issue: the ballot, the right to vote. For any state to make sex a qualification that must ever result in the disfranchisement of one entire half of the people is to pass a bill of attainder or an ex post facto law and is therefore a violation of the supreme law of the land. By it, the blessings of liberty are forever withheld from women and their female posterity. To them, this government has no just powers derived from the consent of the governed. To them, this government is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is an odious aristocracy. A hateful oligarchy of sex this is the body of her speech this is the uh, presentation of the whole problem as it's going to be uh, presented to you in the in the course of the evening and she is making it very forceful with those short phrases you heard that the threes that we saw last time are so helpful not a democracy not a republic and here the third is the contrary an odious aristocracy and that word oligarchy means government by the few so she is she's taking a very technical term oligarchy and yoking it to a very downright term sex the oligarchy of sex this is the way to hold your viewers interest this is to make your your argument seem very immediate we continue Webster Worcester and Bouvier all define a citizen to be a person in the United States entitled to vote and hold office The only question left to be settled now is, are women persons? And I hardly believe any of our opponents will have the hardihood to say they are not. Being persons, then, women are citizens. And no state has a right to make any law or to enforce any old law that shall abridge their privileges or immunities. That is the core of her speech. It is a logical case built step by step, starting with axioms, going on to definitions, going on to examinations and demonstrations of different points, and ending with a conclusion. Note that she continues her definitions right to the end. Webster, Worcester, and I believe that's how it's pronounced, W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R, might be Worcester if he's a, an American writer. And Bouvier they are writers of dictionaries now she sweeps you along with this I want to point out that there is in fact an illogicality here Webster Worcester and Bouvier all define a citizen to be a person in the United States entitled to vote and hold office well all right but she needs to get right on to her great thunderclap of a question are women persons before we stop to think Wait a minute, that definition can be limited to men. She is using the forms of legal argument even when the logic has to make a big jump there. And Aristotle would have considered considered this point very illogically arrived at. You saw it again earlier when she used that term ex post facto, that Latin legal term, to again give a sort of a a halo of the, the legal, of the clear, the concise, the completely logical about the words, regardless of what the line of the reasoning might be. Throughout this speech, she has given no examples. She's given no colorful languages, no metaphors, no images, no pictures of oppressed women. It's all been on a cerebral, abstract, intellectual level. That is where logical cases need to be made. As soon as you get off into ethos and pathos, the personal and the emotional, you are beginning to create doubts in your audience's mind about the hard core value of your reasoning now I want to say that I have edited this speech to give it to you now she did not originally give it quite this way there was a digression in the middle and there was a a sentence tacked on at the end which I think seriously undermined her own case so let's go back now and look having seen a good example of how to make a logical case how to build it step by step she still had her three elements there the introduction the body and the conclusion but let's see some things that were in the original speech that I think we should all learn from and decide we're not going to follow that path first the digression this picks up with those words a hateful oligarchy of sex also an oligarchy of wealth where the rich govern the poor well now this is this is the kind of digression that starts trains of thought in people's minds as they try to work it out. There are rich women, there are poor women, there are poor men. Where do we, where do we tie this into this whole argument about sex being what she's talking about, that it's about all women? This is not well thought out, this is a distraction, and it's going to disrupt the reader's own concentration, or the listener's own concentration, down this path of, how does wealth and poverty tie into this? But now we get into what I really find not just a digression that distracts, but something downright offensive. And trust me, you never want to offend any potential listener in the course of a logical case. An oligarchy of learning where the educated govern the ignorant, or even an oligarchy of race where the Saxon rules the African, where is she going with this, you wonder, might be endured. What? but this oligarchy of sex carries dissension discord and rebellion into every home of the nation this is a terrible digression she's weakening her own case she's saying "Oh, there are cases where equality doesn't matter so much to me is she really saying that the ignorant are not persons is she saying that Africans are not as much persons as women she hasn't thought this through this should have been cut Once it was written as she read through her speech and left on the floor as something not to be put in, both because of the distraction from the main point, but of the potential of undermining her own case with an illogicality and of offending some of her listeners. Finally, let's listen to the original ending of this speech. You'll remember that I gave you her last sentence as this, Being persons then, women are citizens, and no state has a right to make any law or to enforce any old law that shall abridge their privileges or immunities. That's a strong ending. That is tying the whole thing together. That's going back to the uh, idea of the law of the land that she started with, an echo of her quoting of the preamble to the Constitution, and denying the right of the states to, to abrogate that. What did she originally go on to say? This is the original ending hence every discrimination against women in the constitutions and laws of the several states is today null and void precisely as is every one against negroes well why did we bring that in it's an important point but it's not the point she's trying to make and to end with that suddenly turns your attention undercuts everything she said before and leaves a new case and a new problem in your mind, especially with that very unfortunate echo back to the digression, which I omitted when I read it to you the first time, where she's saying she thinks it's more important for women to have the vote than even Africans. So those are the things that I think are needed to be pruned away in order to make this the really strong argument that it it essentially is, although it does have that funny jump in that final Definition where she's taking her idea of uh, a citizen as a person, are women persons, uh, from dictionary definitions that don't fully bear out her case. But that that brings us to another point I want to make before we leave Susan B. Anthony. uh, And that is, you don't want to make cases against yourself. No case is cast iron. Every case, even in science and nuclear physics, has contrary opinions and views to present. Let someone else present those. Unless you can overcome them, unless you have the proofs that show that these contrary views are wrong, leave them out. Now, let's talk about the axioms. And let's consider the fact that axioms can show up in all kinds of conversation, in all kinds of uh, presentations, in all kinds of tone. Uh, Jane Austen, who we quoted before from Mansfield Park and her wonderful observations on the importance of training young people to memorize poetry and speeches and recite them at home so that they can become good speakers. She also gives us a good example, although a rather satirical one, of starting with an axiom. The first sentence of her novel Pride and Prejudice is an axiom. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. The whole novel flows from that axiom, and in a very comic way, the way a logical case will flow from the axioms at the beginning of it. So be on the lookout for these. When you hear people giving speeches, look for the axioms at the beginning as you set out to build a logical case, do what Susan B. Anthony did, state what this is about and how it relates to you, but immediately then get to your axioms. On the same subject of women's suffrage, we can listen to John Stuart Mill in 1867, speaking in Parliament in London. He had married a a suffragette. He admired her a great deal. And he, too, is going to uh, give a big speech, as Susan B. Anthony did, about women's rights to vote. Let's hear his axiom right at the beginning. To lay a ground for refusing the suffrage to anyone, it is necessary to allege either personal unfitness or public danger. That is John Stuart Mill's axiom, it's drawn from English law, that says that any voter can only have the vote taken away in case of insanity, let's say, or criminal activity that makes them a convicted felon. He goes on, having stated his axiom. Now he's beginning to work out truths from it. Now, can either of these be alleged in the present case? Can it be pretended that women who manage an estate or conduct a business, who pay rates and taxes, often to a large amount and frequently from their own earnings, many of whom are heads of families and some of whom, in the capacity of school teach much more than a great number of male electors ever learned, are not capable of a function of which every male householder is capable? So he starts with an axiom and then he tries to find the illogicality between the current situation and the axiom that is part of the law i think that we can see a problem here in john stuart mills presentation just as we saw something that we would i consider a problem with susan b Anthony's, and that is that immense parenthesis which is so important for his argument it actually should have been a series of separate sentences the parenthesis goes he's talking about the women can it be pretended that Women who manage an estate or conduct a business paying rates and taxes and so on all of those should have been Been separate sentences Maybe somewhere else in the talk But it's too much you've lost the thread of his idea and of his original sentence By the time you get way down to the point where he hooks back up to the can it be pretended that These women are not capable of a function. He's given so many examples that you, the listener, are beginning to lose the thread. You never want the audience to lose the thread of a logical discussion. In entertaining speeches, even in teaching speeches, rambling, discursive, uh, following the subject down all sorts of byways, getting into digressions, they can be a lot of fun. These speeches are not about fun. These speeches are about logos, concept, logical trains of thought, trains as in one car hooked up to the next. You never want to go off into such a long set of examples or a parenthesis that that train of thought is broken, and I certainly think it is broken here. Also, he makes a mild joke. I don't know if you saw that. But he's talking about the, the, uh, the, why the women should not be considered unfit to, to vote. He talks about the many women who are heads of families, and some of whom, in the capacity of school mistresses, teach much more than a great number of male electors have ever learnt. That's a joke. That does not belong in this argument. It's also a problem for a second reason. There are going to be some in the parliament who are thinking, is he talking about me? Is he thinking that I am one of those people who was taught more than I learned? If so, you've got some of your audience thinking, maybe he's insulting me you do not want to insult your audience while making a logical case or any part of your audience you want to always be courteous you want to always be positive treat them as reasonable reasonable people who you know are going to do the right thing once they have simply understood the axioms the definitions of terms and the logic behind your presentation so although both susan b anthony and john stuart mill i think in general teach us a lot of very positive things I think we can also see some dangers that we want to stay away from as we get into our own public speaking and building our own cases. Now, to go to someone who was working on this side of the Atlantic in a very different sort of social sphere, but back in the same period, in fact, in the year 1876, let's listen to the words of Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce Indians out in the Great Plains. His tribe is being forced onto a reservation. And he is resisting with logic. His logic, which comes in the early part of the speech, you won't hear it, is that the creator, what is sometimes called the great spirit in Native American oratory, we're going to hear a lot about that next time as we get into painting a picture in words and listen to the words of Tecumseh, a chief of the Shawnee. Chief Joseph's logic is the creator gave that land, Created the land for the Indians and the proof of that is they were the first occupants Didn't the creator spread people around the globe? He must have meant the land for this people Now Native American oratory Indian oratory is often characterized by flamboyant images Pictorial kind of talking he really stays away from that here. It's interesting to me that chief Joseph who spoke very good English chooses to use the word creator to identify his supreme being with that of the Christians he's talking to, rather than great spirit, which implies that there are two different gods. Here we go. Perhaps you think the Creator sent you here to dispose of us as you see fit. If I thought you were sent by the Creator, I might be induced to think you had a right to dispose of me. Do not misunderstand me but understand fully with reference to my affection for the land. I never said the land was mine to do with as I choose. The one who has a right to dispose of it is the one who has created it. I claim a right to live on my land, and I accord you the privilege to return to yours. Now, that's very simple, but it's very powerful. And by avoiding distracting images, poetical language... And any emotion except pride, self-respect, and according that same self-respect to the American official that he's addressing, with that final line, I accord you the privilege to return to yours. That is the words of courtesy, although certainly not the the uh, underlying emotion. He is building a more powerful case than if he were resorting to appeals about himself or based on emotions about what was owed to his tribe he is getting back down to axioms the axiom is the creator made the world he assigned people their lands you do not have the right to change the creators disposition of people upon their lands a very strong case finally let's hear chief Joseph getting worked up over the causes of freedom and what he would be within A new United States system three years have gone by this has made a tremendous difference to the status of the Nez Perce they've lost some battles but he's still fighting now here are his his logical statements let me be a free man free to travel free to stop free to work free to trade where I choose free to choose my own teachers free to follow the religion of my father's free to talk think and act for myself and I will obey every law or submit to the penalty. So he is coming to a legal point, and he is stating the conditions now. If he has granted the freedoms, he will accord the obedience to the law. If he has not accorded those freedoms, he will not. So again, no extraordinary images, pure logos, pure reason, as Chief Joseph works us through his ideas on what it will take to make him A loyal citizen of the United States now in my line of work I am often called upon to make logical arguments I have got to present my my results of my field work to my peers I have to convince them that the interpretations that I am uh, coming to with my evidence are things that they would agree with I give a completely different kind of talk at our national meetings, when I am with my peers in this science of archaeology, than when I'm in the classroom with my students or when I'm out on the road giving speeches to groups at museums or, or civic organizations, I emphasize the logic. I begin with certain premises that I can demonstrate are true. I make steps one after the other that. Involve the defining of terms the establishment of strata. I use a language that is technical remember Susan B Anthony using that legal language I'm using the language of my field in order to get people to buy into what I'm saying to convince them that the point I'm making is true. I always think in the logical terms I keep the poetry out of it I keep the illustrations out of it how wonderful I felt I keep myself out of it as much as possible except to say these are the conclusions I draw this is the evidence that I saw as I excavated that site if I don't make it logical I know people will not be with me on my conclusions and when you are making a logical case as you will be in so many situations in your life you too are going to want to bring people along with you by emphasizing the right part of your argument the solid firm footing and not the softer terrain so we've got a lot of lessons today drawn from mainly susan b anthony and john Stuart mill as we look at the way to build a logical case in a speech let's start looking at those lessons first use clear concise but neutral reasoning aristotle's logos Avoid personal issues, emotional appeals, that is, ethos and pathos. Appeals like that may sway a crowd, but they are most often going to undermine your credibility. Second, base your argument on axioms, laws, self-evident truths. Present them near the beginning of your speech. Third, define your terms and make those definitions into stepping stones as you work towards proving your point and fourth focus on proving a single point rigorously avoid side issues and unnecessary digressions unless you can decisively refute objections to your case do not refer to such contrary matter as you make your speech but we have more than this in addition to those hardcore lessons there are some others Uh, applying especially to the kind of way in which you present your speech that I think are very important to bear in mind so be strong and forceful be an advocate for your view don't hesitate to make it clear you believe this but at the same time always be courteous and positive and avoid statements that might alienate anyone who would be listening unnecessarily then check the accuracy of all your facts Double-check the precise meaning of any technical terms that you use in your speech. In addition, think carefully before including humor, anecdotes, vivid language, metaphors, dramatic surprises in your speech. They're often very good in some kinds of speech. They're not good in arguments. And finally, our eighth lesson for the day, enliven your argument with rhetorical questions. Are women persons? to create a sense of dramatic dialogue, and to clarify opposing issues. I believe if you can learn from our great guest professors, if you can take to heart what they show you about the step-by-step progression of building a logical speech, your logic will be able to prevail in almost any argument that you choose to make.